This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Although I'll be spending a fair amount of time discussing uh, some of the advances in neuromodulation, spinal cord stimulation for um, uh, chronic pain, especially back and leg pain, I'd like to actually expand this discussion to include a bit more on... Um, addiction and uh, opiate epidemic and even a little bit of the COVID epidemic as well. So hopefully it all pulls together for you. Uh, I do have some consulting arrangements with a a variety of companies that are listed here. So when I gave this uh, talk initially back in uh, 2016, uh, Barack Obama was president, uh, Joe Biden was uh, vice president, and uh, Nancy Pelosi was speaker of the house. And now Joe is president. And we have uh, Kamala Harris, and Nancy is still there. Um, major difference here seems to be the mask. Uh, seems that uh, this is the first time we've seen that in State of the Union. At that point in time, we were in the midst of our uh, what seemed to be the worst of our opioid epidemic. Uh, things were escalating quite a bit, and there were lots of initiatives, uh, federal and state level initiatives, to try and address uh, ways of managing pain, minimizing opioid exposure to address the opioid uh, epidemic that we were experiencing at that point in time. Unfortunately, uh, COVID hit a few years later and our opioid epidemic uh, uh, continued to escalate at a record pace. Uh, We're now on track for uh, having well over uh, uh, 100,000 deaths in uh, 2021 and uh, possibly exceeding 1 million people who have died from opioid uh, overdoses since uh, the turn of the century. So I'd like to sort of explore some of the intersections between uh, the COVID-19 crisis and the opioid crisis and how neuromodulation fits into this. And let's look at what the effect the pandemic has had on the opioid crisis. And we certainly have seen a, um, uh, the data showing increases in opioid deaths as a result of uh, uh, covid Certainly patients are um, more isolated and uh, depression and mental health uh, concerns have been skyrocketing as well. And in addition, we've had uh, highlights of opioid um, of uh, healthcare disparities, both in terms of uh, treatment of uh, COVID as well as uh, opioid addiction and, and chronic pain as well. So these are all the things that are sort of coming together to give us the problems that we see today. Certainly we saw uh, prior to the COVID epidemic, um, uh, the institutionalization of the mentally ill, uh, huge numbers of folks living uh, uh, homeless and living on the street. And that certainly uh, was ripe for spreading COVID even more uh, drastically uh, throughout our various communities. Uh, This is an image of uh, encampment uh, around the corner from the uh, the Costco that I use in Santa Cruz. And this uh, baggy uh, syringes you see on the far left here is a daily collection of syringes that my auto mechanic would pick up in front of his shop every morning. So certainly things uh, were uh, already ripe for problems for spreading disease and expanding the opioid uh, problem even before COVID hit. When we look at the uh, distribution of the opioid epidemic and the drug overdose, we see that West Virginia was number one, and that'll be relevant later on in the talk. 
with a sort of significant increase between 2010 and 2016, uh, 60 uh, deaths per 100,000. Uh, California is closer to uh, the bottom here at being number 44 out of 50 states. Uh, but still uh, seeing uh, changes and increases over time as well. Then COVID hit, and initially it was a curious uh, disease we heard about coming from uh, uh, overseas, but within just a few days, every week, there seemed to be a rapid increase in the number of deaths from COVID until it became clear that it was a uh, pandemic that we would all have to be uh, addressing for the next few years here. When, it looks at, when we look at the disparity issues, we see that um, uh, COVID also had um, obvious uh, uh, healthcare disparity concerns. We see here in this article uh, that the, in New York that there was a significant difference in the COVID-related deaths depending on uh, race and uh, median income. Uh, sort of the folks at the uh, lower socioeconomic uh, part of the ladder had uh, less access and less uh, uh, availability to care and as a result uh, had higher death rates. Similarly, we find that uh, although our opioid death rates in California overall uh, was not among the highest in the nation, if we broke it down by county and looked at some of the counties that had uh, lower uh, uh, economic uh, access, we see that those counties also had higher uh, death rates due to opioids. Uh, this year, uh, I was able to join in with a number of my colleagues looking at the uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities of spinal cord stimulation among Medicare patients. And uh, that study showed that among um, uh, those receiving spinal cord stimulation procedures, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics had the uh, lowest uh, access and availability uh, with those who had um, both Medicare and Medicaid eligible uh, had the uh, even lower uh, access to spinal cord stimulation. Unfortunately, uh, this year hasn't been good uh, on a, a variety of fronts. And uh, for the first time in my career, uh, the only pain therapy uh, that requires prior authorization uh, for the treatment of uh, our patients in the pain clinic uh, is uh, Medicare patients is um, uh, spinal cord stimulation. That's one of the first uh, times ever Medicare has required prior authorization for treatment of any sort. And uh, for us in the um, uh, pain center, it's, uh, it's quite a shock to find out that that was going to be spinal cord stimulation uh, procedure that we use quite a bit for patients on with uh, severe uh, neuropathic pain in the trunk and extremities. So let's review again. Um, this is uh, part of what I discussed back in 2016, but neuromodulation is the focused uh, uh, treatment of using technologies at the neural interface. Sometimes that includes electrical stimulation of a peripheral nerve, a portion of the cells outside the spinal cord, and sometimes uh, the spinal cord itself. And uh, even more recently, we began using uh, uh, brain stimulation for the treatment of pain as well. All of these are aspects of neuromodulation. Uh, mostly it's electrical, but as we'll discuss later, it includes uh, magnetic stimulation and sometimes drug infusions directly into the central nervous system as well. This is one of the more common uh, forms that we use in our clinic and uh, across the nation. Uh, it's a 
a couple of electrodes, a couple of wires with individual contacts on them. And that's attached to a battery pack that's implanted underneath the skin, much like a pacemaker. And these are used to, to disrupt the uh, pain signals that travel from the uh, rest of the body up through the spinal cord into the brain. If we can disrupt them before they get to the brain, then the person doesn't have uh, as much pain. And hopefully they can reduce their usage of opioids, have an improved quality of life and resume some of their normal functions that they couldn't when they had uh, uh, severe chronic pain. The hypothesis up until the last couple of years, um, so for 50 years we've been using spinal cord stimulation. Some of the first studies uh, were actually done here at UCSF by Dr. Hasabuchi in 1971 and two. Uh, and that proposed that the electric fields would stimulate the uh, dorsal part of the spinal cord, like you see here on the right screen, at that green um, asterisk. And that as long as you could stimulate those fibers and those fibers would uh, travel into the cord, activate the inhibitory GABA fibers you see here on the diagram on the left, and that would reduce the sensitivity and the activation of the pain neurons that would transmit information to the brain. And this has been the working hypothesis for the last 50 plus years. Unfortunately, um, uh, we begin seeing um, in the last few years that long-term success of spinal cord stimulation wasn't the same as we were seeing with other forms of neuromodulation. Here we see a deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's, uh, VNS stimulation for uh, uh, seizures and uh, uh, depression. Uh, were maintaining their therapy over the course of 10 years, uh, even if, which is the solid line, even if the battery pack uh, diminished over that period of time and need to be replaced, the battery pack could be replaced and the therapy continued. However, when we look at spinal cord stimulation, we see that the therapy itself is diminishing. People actually uh, were having the devices removed because it wasn't providing them with uh, analogies of benefit for the entire 10 years. Uh, and that rate was uh, almost uh, up to 50% over the course of 10 years. On average, we've seen this about 10% per year. Still are unclear exactly why that is the case, but uh, some new research that I've been involved with might lead some uh, insights to that. While the static nature of stimulation was the mode in which we thought the spinal cord stimulators were working, uh, it wasn't until we started looking a little more closely that we found that spinal cord stimulation actually is extremely variable and is variable based on the activities of normal daily living. Breathing, sitting, standing, coughing, talking, laughing will cause motion of the spinal cord within the fluid that the spinal cord floats in. And therefore, the electric stimulation is sometimes appropriately stimulating at the green asterisk, but sometimes stimulating at the red asterisk, which is a site that causes more pain. So there's a lot of variability that occurs, and this is something that we hadn't really recognized and took into consideration uh, in our field for the last 50 years. In essence, we didn't really know what was happening to the neural tissues that we were stimulating. If we compare this to a pacemaker, a pacemaker will activate and stimulate the heart and then record the um, EKG of the heart to make sure that it's responding appropriately and then make a decision as to whether to stimulate the next uh, heartbeat or not. And 
which part of the heart? Is it the atrium or the ventricle? All this is pacemakers have been doing for the last 50 years. And therefore, there's some feedback, some physiological feedback that controls the output of the device. The only feedback that we have been, we currently have, even today uh, in the commercial marketplace, is the patient's response to how they're feeling. And they can either turn up or turn down the stimulator, and that's it. We had no real indication of what was actually happening to their nervous system or, more importantly, to their spinal cord. It's not as though we didn't understand this from animal work, however. In animal work, we have known for well over half a century that uh, there is a uh, activation of a neuron, which is a pain cell, and um, or any neuron for any purpose, but it's uh, called an action potential, and you activate it, and that creates an electrical current, and that current can be measured. If you're inside the cell, it goes up like this, comes from minus 70 to uh, positive, and if you're on the outside of the cell, it's just the reverse of that. Well, it turns out, just like with the EKG that has electrodes on the chest, and recording the compound muscle potentials of the heart, we can use electrodes on the outside of the spinal cord to record the evoked compound action potentials of the spinal cord when it's being stimulated. And that's uh, uh, something that has uh, uh, not been available before. It's not available in the United States yet, uh, but it is under investigation here in the US. And by doing that, we can now have a, an output from our stimulus and let us have some insight on the uh, neural activation and the spinal cord response to see if we're stimulating too little, too much, or just the right amount. We correlate that by increasing the uh, output of the device, but recording the response of the patient's spinal cord, not just what they respond. So they tell us that they're feeling better with the stimulation, but we compare that to how the neural responses that we're recording off of their spinal cord and correlate the two so that we know that their particular neural response uh, that correlates with their pain relief will be the target that we're aiming for, not necessarily just the output of the device. When we do that, we see that uh, huge variability in just normal daily activities occurs with the activation of the spinal cord. And if a person's going to manage this and adjust it accordingly, they would have to adjust it so that it stays in that white bar. And when they're doing activities like uh, laying down or deep breathing, they have to adjust it down and because it'll be too high. And if they're laying on their stomach, they have to adjust it up so it's not too low. Well, that clearly is a quite the challenge for patients to do that, requiring that throughout the day. So, one possibility is let a computer do that. And by identifying the ideal response that the patient has on their own spinal cord and understanding that that's the response that they say correlates with their pain relief, then every subsequent stimulation needs to be compared to that one and have the computer make those adjustments. Because if the computer needs to make those adjustments and the patient's moving and doing their daily activity, it turns out that they're gonna to need to adjust that several million times a day. Clearly too much for an individual to push up the amplitude and lower the amplitude with their thumb on their little remote control device. So let's see how this works. Here's a patient in the open loop group, meaning that she has the control to go up and down, but 
if the computer is not turned on to control that, this is what happens to her. Try that little cough, small one. <coughs> Did you feel anything then? The spike of intensity. Yeah. You want to try a bigger cough? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a bigger spike. <coughs> yes. Quite a lot, right? <laughs> oh, yes. So you can see there, as she coughed, um, the pressure from just the cough pushes the spinal cord closer to the electrode, and she gets an overshock with that. Very uncomfortable. Oh, yes, that's that's too much. You can see on that second line there, this is the way every device that's currently available in the United States is currently used. Uh, you set the output, and then you keep that output constant unless the patient changes it, but trying to change it just for a cough is uh, virtually impossible. And so she ends up with overstimulation, as you can see here. Now, when we turn the computer on, so the computer understands the amplitude of that top line that is comfortable for her. We'll see what happens. Let's try the coughs again. <coughs> Bigger cough. <coughs> Do you feel any changes there? Not much of a change, no. And you can see the reason why she didn't get overstimulated is because that second line there could pick up the fact that the spinal cord is closer to the lead now, delivering more energy and being absorbed by the spinal cord more. And therefore, for her not to be overstimulated and, and to have the appropriate neural response, the device had to be turned down. This is occurring at 40 times per second. Uh, so this is a very fast feedback control mechanism that allows her to have more comfort. And uh, this is one thought that this might be the reason why we've been having some trouble with long-term access and uh, viability of stimulation in some patients. As a result of that, uh, uh, we initiated a uh, multi-center trial. Uh, I was part of a group of uh, over uh, 13 uh, sites in the U.S. that compared the open loop, which means patient-controlled level of activation versus closed loop, which was the computer-controlled activation. Uh, these patients were identical in every other way. And uh, most significantly, they had the most severe pain, uh, back and leg pain, for more than 11 years. And you could not be enrolled in the study if you didn't have at least a minimum of severe disability or considered crippled on the Oswestry Disability Index. This is the most severe uh, set of patients we've seen in any of our studies. And what we find is that both of them uh, did fairly well for a long period of time, over two years. We're currently uh, submitted the two-year uh, data for publication. The one-year uh, data was uh, published last year. But nonetheless, the uh, closed loop still did significantly better. Uh, but remember, these are the first people ever programmed with their own neural responses in both groups. And just like we saw before in the earlier studies that uh, efficacy starts to wane for some over time and patients end up with explants, we're already starting to see the explants in the open loop arm. So that's the patient controlled only, but no explants due to loss of efficacy in the computer controlled or closed loop arm yet. Other things that we uh, noticed in this uh, study was an increase in the uh, number of patients who were responsive. We used to say that spinal cord stimulation was able to help 50% of the patients 50% of the time. Now, uh, with this study, we're seeing that the number of patients responsive is up to 50, uh, 84%, 
and those with high responsivity uh, getting greater than 80% benefit was uh, at least 50% as well. So uh, we're pushing the, uh, the envelope on who actually benefits from spinal cord stimulus by uh, recording their own neural responses. Here you see in the red and uh, sort of dark red or brown, that's 100% of the patients were uh, severely uh, disabled or crippled. And at the end of 24 months, 78% of those patients were in the minimal to moderate range and only 22% uh, remained uh, in that severe range. Uh, as you're all quite aware, sleep is extremely important. And here we see that uh, with uh, both the open and closed loop, they did better with sleep, but the uh, uh, closed loop computer controlled did significantly better. And uh, people actually uh, improved to near uh, close, many of them uh, ended up with close to normal sleep patterns. Um, there's only 3% at baseline, and by the end of the study, uh, greater than 30% had uh, normal sleep patterns and all had uh, improvement in their sleep quality. And as we look at the opioid epidemic, understanding the impact on uh, opioid usage is also important. And here we see a 66% reduction in the patients using opioids uh, uh, during the study as well. So these are all good signs that we're getting some ideas on how to improve on spinal cord stimulation, make it more effective and last longer, and uh, hopefully help eliminate our uh, dependency on opioids for managing chronic pain problems. Recall that while we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people uh, dying per year uh, from opiate abuse, we still have uh, 50 million who suffer from chronic pain. So it's a balancing act trying to help all of those patients. So I'd like to sort of expand our discussion today into other areas of neuromodulation for pain and other related things. Uh, this was uh, uh, the event study. It looks at a percutaneous uh, vagal nerve stimulation. That little device there is a couple of electrodes at the end of that device, and that now has FDA approval for the treatment of headaches. And all you need to do is uh, use it when you have a headache. Uh, you place it on the neck there and stimulate the vagus nerve and for two minutes, uh, two or three times, and uh, see if your headache uh, uh, resolves. And the study looked at how many headache days there were in a month. And you can see on the graph here, uh, in the period of eight months, there was precipitous drop in the number of headaches per day uh, or per month. And uh, that's why it achieved uh, FDA approval. Then COVID came along. And it turns out that prior studies have been identified that the vagus nerve is important for inflammatory uh, diseases and it can inhibit inflammatory uh, flares. And we recognize that uh, part of the problem with COVID was uh, the uh, uh, immune response, sort of the immuno uh, storm that happened as a result of the infection. And with the start of a trial and some initial uh, preliminary data, uh, the FDA uh, allowed emergency usage of the uh, vagal nerve stimulator for the treatment of asthma to prevent uh, uh, patients with COVID from hopefully proceeding to intubation and decreasing their uh, a cytokine storm, uh, as we call it. And um, further uh, data on this is currently being uh, worked up, but it's just another way how neuromodulation can be used for pain for one indication, but uh, another medical indication as well. Uh, to get a more uh, exhaustive discussion about 
the usage of neuromodulation for inflammatory diseases, rheumatic uh, uh, diseases and inflammatory diseases. Uh, this is a wonderful article I highly recommend. It's uh, from 2015, but it still sets the stage for how uh, things like vagus nerve stimulation can be used for rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and a variety of other things. So it's, it's a good read. It was a little ahead of its time. And yet here we are uh, five years later, actually treating um, inflammatory disease uh, with uh, vagal nerve stimulation. How about other things we're doing for pain? And this is something that uh, has been used in the recent years. Uh, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's currently FDA approved for the treatment of depression. However, um, a number of centers are using it to treat addiction and pain as well. Uh, a number of us worked with uh, the lead author on this uh, document, looking at the uh, usage of TMS for pain. Uh, currently, the two investigators here at UCSF, Dr. Moskin and Dr. Shivakar, are, are working in collaboration uh, with our colleague, uh, Dr. Leong, down at uh, UC San Diego, on the uses of uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation for pain. Uh, he was studying in San Diego primarily headache, but uh, and the, the uh, protocol experiments that will be uh, getting started here soon at UCSF will be expanding that to other neuropathic pain disorders as well. So I welcome you to look for that steady uh, enrollment and uh, recruitment uh, uh, in the very near future. Other studies being conducted here at UCSF include uh, the use of deep brain stimulation, where you put the electrodes actually in the brain for the treatment of pain. Uh, the uh, neurosurgeon in charge of this is Dr. Edward Chang, and uh, the lead neurologist, uh, Dr. Uh, Prasad Shivakar, are looking at this as a way to manage the most severe uh, issues of pain. Uh, for example, uh, the pain that occurs after a uh, stroke can be extremely severe and include uh, large portions of the body, makes it difficult for any other type of neuromodulation to manage. But with uh, uh, EM, uh, EEG recordings and recordings uh, from the electrodes in the brain, so more of that closed-loop concept, um, they're able to find uh, appropriate targets and stimulate those targets to reduce pain. I think they've uh, enrolled at least a half a dozen or so patients so far. I think enrollment is still occurring, and we're sort of piggybacking onto that as they learn more about the sites uh, that they need to record from to feed back onto their DVS. Uh, stimulation. Uh, in the pain clinic, we're also trying to utilize that information by uh, seeing if those same areas could help us feed back control into future spinal cord stimulation. So a little more advanced uh, uh, brain mechanism for uh, feedback for spinal cord stimulation. This is still in the very preliminary stages. We're collecting data uh, on EEG for all of our spinal cord stim patients that um, are during our trial period so we can compare our uh, EEGs to how they're doing. So I look forward to seeing that progress over time as well. I'm going to shift gears a little bit as we talk about the opioid epidemic. Um, we should probably uh, discuss um, neuromodulation for addiction as well. Uh, in the last few years, things have really picked up in this area. As you can see here, um, there's been a spike in both uh, treatment of addiction with deep brain stimulation, as well as TMS. Uh, these are the number of publications that show up in the medical literature. Certainly, 
very few at the turn of the century and we're on an exponential uh, rise in the number of publications being uh, uh, published for this uh, in recent years and this is a good review of that and in addition to using uh, deep brain stimulation and uh, TMS stimulation which is non-invasive uh, there's uh, additional uh, new technologies looking at uh, ultrasound uh, for the treatment of addiction as well. So a number of these studies looking at alcohol, heroin, nicotine, cocaine, uh, all with various types of neural stimulation. You can see here on the left column, there's tra transcranial magnetic stimulation, low intensity focus ultrasound, deep brain stimulation, uh, direct current stimulation uh, uh, on the transcranially a vagal nerve stimulation, auricular stimulation, and trigeminal nerve stimulation. So the field is exploding on various ways to address addiction with neuromodulation techniques. Uh, when we look at uh, how one would employ these techniques, there's certainly uh, limitations of each individual technology. Uh, for TMS, stimulation of the cortex is possible and could be targeted, but any deeper centers you can't really get to. However, if you use focus ultrasound, you can bypass the superficial layers and focus your stimulation with focus ultrasound into the deeper layers. Uh, these are very new uh, ultrasound machines for the purposes of stimulating neural tissue. Uh, I believe we just uh, acquired one of these at UCSF in our beginning our uh, set of experiments with them. It's a relatively new field that's uh, very exciting to be able to stimulate deep brain regions without surgically implanting a lead in the deep brain area. So I think this is something to look forward to uh, more as well. And when we look at the treatment of addiction, we have to look at all the various complex regions that are involved. And it's not just one or the other, but it's this uh, circuitry of addiction and understanding which sites and the pathways to stimulate are going to be critically important. And sometimes we'll mix a uh, cortical stimulation with a deeper stimulation, like here at the one and four and three areas of, uh, versus uh, uh, the uh, more superficial areas. And this is all being, uh, uh, we're not doing this quite yet at UC, but uh, this is uh, work that's being worked up at uh, uh, University of uh, uh, West Virginia University at the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, looking at uh, stimulation for the top-down approach from the cortex down and from the deeper centers up. This work is being uh, led by Dr. Ali Rizai at uh, uh, West Virginia University. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, this is quite uh, impressive that uh, West Virginia was the uh, highest number one area of addiction per 100,000. And so uh, their university decided to make this their highest priority and, and do it a lot of attention to trying to solve this problem um, using a neuromodulation techniques. Uh, part of what they're looking at is looking at the triggers for addiction and the craving, looking at brain signals that correspond to those uh, uh, responsive triggers and pictures and paraphernalia and whatnot, and seeing how the brain activity changes and trying to modify those uh, changes in the brain by something as uh, uh, simple and non-invasive as uh, TMS. This is a TMS is something you can do 15, 20 minute treatments, 30 minute treatments in the clinic, non-invasive. You don't take off your clothes. You just uh, 
put a, a magnetic stimulator with a focused uh, uh, beam on it, and it targets the appropriate centers in the brain. And uh, initial studies have shown that this has had a significant impact on craving uh, for both uh, heroin, uh, patients addicted to heroin and cocaine. And this has uh, started this series of publications out of their uh, center. So there's a lot of coverage there and neuromodulation, a variety of things. But what I really wanted to focus in on at the end here is to, to recognize that in spite of all the great new technologies and abilities we have to treat various disorders, both uh, pain, addiction, COVID, whatever the case might be, it's clear that we have to uh, really understand in order to provide adequate care for all of our uh, patients and the entire public health, we have to understand the issues related to health equity uh, as being uh, important over health uh, equality, um, making sure that everyone has appropriate uh, access will be an important endeavor that we have to pursue, not just the technology. With that, I'm going to uh, end my talk and open it up for questions because I'm sure there's a variety of things we can uh, go into more depth with. Thank you, Dr. Prey. That was an excellent talk. So one of the questions asked, will the idea of 5G interfere with any of these devices? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think let me expand on that a little bit. Uh, many of these devices are currently uh, uh, being evaluated by the FDA, not only for what they can do with communication between their handheld, handheld controlled devices and the devices that are in the patient, but also allow us to uh, remotely manage and program them. And using 5G might be a part of that. Uh, so um, the FDA has... Uh, uh, gathered together a group of experts, and two things are uh, uh, high on the list to solve. Uh, one is uh, uh, data security, uh, and the other is going to be, uh, that's actually more of an issue probably than the electronic uh, interference. The uh, discussion of, of uh, frequencies that communicate among communication parameters or medical parameters, those have been set a while back by the FCC as there being very different uh, areas of uh, uh, the frequency bandwidth that is available for those two different things. But uh, interception and, and security of that data as it transmits through uh, uh, our uh, sort of space and internet is actually even more concerning. And many people are working on solving all those problems as well because this is growing so fast that uh, uh, without uh, those proper uh, safeguards, uh, it could be a problem in that respect. Very interesting. I can see how HIPAA uh, can HIPAA compliance to protect data is very important. So I can see how that would be something that the FDA would be interested in as well. Can you talk about any limitations with any of these devices with respect to perhaps travel or other scans like MRI or ultrasound? So there are limits. Um, and so recognizing a patient's an appropriate candidate would also mean they should recognize what other medical devices or inter interactions they might need to have. Uh, just like we just talked about interference with communication devices, Early on, uh, 30, 40 years ago, there was a discussion and concern about uh, interference with um, 
between a spinal cord stimulator and a pacemaker. Uh, back in those days, they, uh, the battery was oftentimes one of the electrodes and uh, for both pacemakers and stimulators, so those had some interference. But uh, that has been solved uh, many years ago, and so that's no longer an issue there. MRI, uh, however, was not available to people with spinal cord stimulation up until maybe 10 years ago. Uh, MRI would heat up and it became a problem. And so uh, new technologies need to be developed, uh, shielding around the leads, uh, different electronics, making them uh, more resistant to MRI. And so now that they are uh, mostly, not all, but mostly now are, are uh, conditional MRIs at the 1.5 strength magnets, uh, most of them are not conditionally approved at the 3.0 magnets at this point in time. But this is an ongoing process as technology advances, uh, the interaction has to be more uh, uh, focused on and pay attention to things that we can need to do. So it's an ongoing process, but yeah, there's moving uh, forward in both of these respects. It definitely sounds like it's an evolving field. And I can see that there's talks of now perhaps a five, a five Tesla MRI, and now we have some of these other devices that were not approved for that. So I can see how trying to always stay one step ahead is really the, the way to succeed with this. Uh, can you walk uh, through the steps of how a patient might obtain one of these or how do they acquire one? If that, let's say it is for back pain, how would they go about this process to see if it's the right fit for them? Right. Real easy. Just come to UCSF and we'll take care of you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you're not uh, able to come see us, there are certainly providers across the nation and across the globe. Uh, most of us have a very similar evaluation process. We look at um, the kind of pain you have. Uh, spinal cord stimulation in particular is very useful for what we call a nerve-related pain, uh, uh, the shooting electrical sensitivity that runs on the leg after uh, bad uh, uh, back injury or a nerve injury or uh, episode of uh, shingles. Uh, those are the severe neuropathic pain disorders and seeing uh, a pain physician that specializes in neuromodulation that can assess you for that is the first step. Uh, in the United States, uh, all insurance companies, including Medicare, require a psychological evaluation prior to being uh, trialed. And once you are deemed to be an appropriate candidate, uh, because we still are not looking at 100% of the people who uh, are trialed on this getting uh, uh, adequate benefit, we still do a trial phase. And in that trial phase, uh, you're committing to uh, a needle or two needles uh, directed into the uh, spinal area and the epidural area, much like a, a procedure that is similar to uh, epidurals that women get for labor pain. Uh, that's the same procedure. Then the, through the needle, instead of injecting a local anesthetic as you would do for labor pain, you put these two wires in, you pull the needles out and tape it to the back. And the patient wears that for five or seven or 10 days and evaluates a variety of the electrical programming to see if it provides some pain relief. After that period of time, it's pulled out, put a Band-Aid over it, and that's the end of the trial. If the trial is successful, then the patient returns, those leads are placed underneath the skin and attached to one of these battery packs. So it's a, it's a bit of a process, but uh, that's usually the way most of us uh, evaluate and trial the patients and see if they're appropriate for uh, this kind of therapy. 
So it's, it's really, um, the patient actually will actually get to try this before it was ever implanted. So pretty unique. You're never really allowed to try on a hip replacement beforehand. So it's, it is very unique. So right. that, that, yeah, construction and, uh, it's pretty much hundred percent reversible. So, uh, if you, uh, if you get a hip replacement or a knee replacement, you can't say, Oh, never mind, give me back my old hip or my old knee. Uh, so that's also a nice thing about this. It's something you can try out without cutting at all and then uh, evaluate for a good period of time before you make your final decision. Another uh, um, attendee asks, Can you expound on how ultrasound is able to pass by some tissues and target areas further inside the brain? I would like to be able to tell you I'm an expert in that field and I'm well versed in it. Uh, but to be perfectly honest with you, uh, it's something that is relatively new to me as well. Um, but uh, my understanding is that uh, as it passes through uh, the tissues, it is not focused and therefore does not disrupt or generate a lot of energy in the local surrounding tissues. It only generates energy as it focuses down onto a particular beam. Um, like I said, this is really new technology. I've only learned about it in the last few weeks and, and uh, I'm equally uh, uh, bewildered by that engineering and technology, but that's what I understand so far, but we're looking forward to understanding it more. Uh, like I said, my understanding is that UCSF just acquired one of these uh, within weeks ago. So I think uh, we have a lot to learn about it. Yeah, great new technology. I was uh, uh, more engaged with that technology to be able to give you a better uh, engineering answer. But uh, hopefully uh, our next update will have all that squared away. Thank you. That was that was a great response to that question. And considering the fact we just acquired one. So it's very exciting. It's new, new technology. And again, sometimes we don't know how things work either. We just know they do. So we'll see how that that uh, plays out, obviously. Uh, another question from an attendee, has surgical removing or cutting of nerves been part um, been part of historic attempts to relieve pain? The spinal cord stem seems like a much more elegant solution. Absolutely. Um, one of my colleagues and good friends, um, Jamie Henderson at uh, Stanford, um, would often give a lecture on all of the neuroablative techniques that are available through neurosurgical uh, cutting of nerves, taking out part of the spinal cord, uh, taking out sections of the brain. Um, you know, one of the most tragic uh, public stories of this is uh, Rosemary Kennedy. And any of you who don't know about this story, it's something you can look up on the internet, but um, she had a diagnosis, which in today's terms, it may have been uh, depression. Uh, but at any rate, um, she was subjected to a frontal lobotomy and she was prior to that, she was an active uh, person, heavily engaged in her life. And after that procedure, she uh, had the uh, cognitive skill set of a three year old and was institutionalized and only died just a few years ago, uh, but was institutionalized for the rest of her life. So this idea of cutting the material out of the brain, spinal cord and nerves is certainly um, rudimentary uh, by comparison to our uh, more uh, directed uh, focus uh, neuromodulation techniques today. And uh, Dr. Henderson is the director of uh, neuromodulation and functional neurosurgery at Stanford. And while he gives an entire hour lecture on all the things that he was trained to cut and remove to treat a variety of diseases, 
Uh, he's basically focuses all his attention now on just neuromodulation because many of those, not all of them, but many of them can now be treated without destruction. And so we typically will focus our attention on, on um, modulating the nervous system before destroying the nervous system in most cases. Now, uh, one of the attendees mentioned that they've heard of peripheral nerve stimulation. Is that the same as spinal cord stimulation? Not the same, but in many cases, it is a similar uh, similar technology. So, for example, uh, I've uh, placed a number of uh, occipital nerve stimulators. Uh, so you don't really need to stimulate the spinal cord itself. Um, one of the ones that I find to be terribly useful is occipital nerve stimulation for headaches and back of the head pain. And the same lead, same batteries. Uh, so the technology is almost identical. It's just about where you put it. Uh, we also have leads that go into the areas of the nerves and the sacrum, stimulate those nerves, both for pain and for function. So, um, there are advantages and disadvantages for peripheral nerve stimulation, but it's certainly a viable uh, technique that we use quite readily at the UCSF pain clinic in addition to spinal cord stimulation. In general, sort of a big global perspective here, if the pain is focal and is a result of a peripheral nerve injury uh, and is easily accessible, then uh, peripheral nerve stimulation uh, sort of uh, might be a simpler and easier way to go about it versus uh, having to go inside the spine. But the techniques are very close, same needles, same batteries, same leads for the most part. Uh, some people uh, uh, prefer to stimulate uh, more peripherally. If the pain is more widespread, like a total trunk involvement of shingles, then you'd have to have too many peripheral nerve stimulators to make it effective. So that's where spinal cord stimulation is more effective for that. So it's uh, certainly right in the mix of what we use every day for neuromodulation for pain. How, what do you feel is the future of neuromodulation? Is it smaller leads, more efficient batteries, or more applications? Or do you feel that they're headed next? I think that um, in the last 10 years, uh, there's been a tremendous focus on uh, greater indications, uh, uh, some new work coming out on uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Uh, early work uh, was even looking at uh, peripheral vascular disease, arterial uh, uh, problems, uh, diabetic ulcers and things of that nature. So I think there's always been this push to uh, utilize it for a variety of conditions and expand those conditions. However, I'm very excited that I believe the future will be understanding what we're doing to the nervous mm -hmm. system. And I think that's where we're going to have a huge, huge explosion in its utilization. The uh, information I presented was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, when we have uh, uh, ideas of things such as medications, which affect the nervous system, uh, didn't even know that until we started doing uh, these ECAP studies. And we're finding huge changes in what type of medications. So some pain medications make spinal cord stimulation work better. Others make it work less well. And we didn't know that before we could record the nervous system. Now that we can see that, it'll adjust how we do things. So I think it'll be uh, the big next boom will be in understanding uh, how we can modulate it to accommodate the physiological changes, the pharmacological changes, 
and just uh, changes of aging uh, that occur in the body and understand how to make that change uh, work better with the systems that the patient has. Do you or have you seen an application to be utilized in an acute setting such as a post, let's say post lung transplant or recovery from maybe a sports injury from a competitive athlete that you don't want to have narcotics and can't afford to have narcotic testing or have a positive test in their narcotics. Do you feel that this could be utilized in those type of scenarios or have you heard of that? Um, I tell you, this has been something I've been uh, on my wish list for the last 10 years. I think that this is highly underutilized. And I think the trouble with the concept is not a physiological or a medical concept problem. It's an economic concept problem. Mm. Uh, and until we can solve the issue of uh, getting the cost significantly reduced, then we won't see this being explored more. Um, I certainly believe that for many of the, especially the uh, post-operative neuropathic pain states we see, that sure, might recover over the course of a year or two on their own. But if a person wants to become more functional quicker, uh, get out of the hospital sooner, have less medication on board, I think this is something that we certainly can uh, look at. Certainly, folks have looked at uh, uh, TENS units to see how they've been effective for uh, that uh, issue. But, you know, we do epidurals for post-operative pain every day of the week. And why, uh, why not just put a lead in instead? The issue is not so much the lead, but the issue is the generator. We need re, uh, reusable peripheral generators where some of the latest um, uh, new uh, technologies using RF uh, that are out now don't implant batteries at all. They just have external generators. You just can adhere to your surface of your skin or put in a fanny pack and thereby use that same generator for various patients over a period of time. I think we're really close. Um, we're not quite there yet, but I think we're very, very close uh, to being able to treat on a regular basis acute pain without opioids, but with neuromodulation. But uh, it has to make financial sense and economic sense for the companies that are developing these and for hospitals and payers who are paying for them. So we're, we're almost there. That's, that's really exciting. That is very exciting. Can you talk about spinal cord stimulation as a possible therapy for Parkinson's patients? Oh, boy, uh, some great questions. Um, I cannot talk about that uh, with any um, uh, detail, but I can tell you that if we expand that question a little bit more and we ask the question, can spinal cord stimulation possibly be used for movement disorders of various sorts? Uh, there is a number of studies going on. And that includes uh, movement disorders, including spinal cord injury. Um, we've been using spinal cord stimulation for pain for a number of years, even in those patients with spinal cord injuries have pain that generates from the transition where their spinal cord injury is. And lo and behold, it turned out that some of them were able to get up and uh, walk after being unable to walk for greater than 10 years. It was a surprise to everyone. And so there are a number of centers that are exploring that. Um, in addition, there is a, a group out of Australia looking at uh, cerebral palsy as a dysfunction of descending inhibition from the brain as a result of and causing uh, a spastic, spastic gates and inability to control the lower extremities, uh, looking at the usage of spinal cord stimulation for that. 
And so the idea for Parkinson's, I know some folks are evaluating that as well. I, all of this is still not on label and still in experimental stages, but uh, ultimately the brain sends signals down the spinal cord to control various uh, functions. And if we can tap into that control, one of the studies we are currently doing just to get a better understanding of how we might utilize that in the future, we're taking our, uh, those patients who are coming in for spinal cord stimulation trials. And at the end of their trial, um, connecting them up to our recording uh, devices and looking at them move their limbs. These are patients that have normal physiology, but as they move their limbs, move their various sets of muscles, we're getting those recordings off the leads. And we're going to be able to use that information to then better understand how to stimulate to mimic that same activity. So um, this is uh, happening on multiple fronts and multiple centers. And so movement disorders and spinal cord stimulation is certainly uh, uh, so front and center of the research field uh, in neuromodulation across the United States and across the world. Yeah, and, uh, and, and actually the deep brain stimulators as well, which can help with the movement disorders. Um, another question from the, the Q&A, do you have a preference for or against paddle leads for spinal cord stimulation? Uh, I don't have a preference for or against any neuromodulation device, <laughs> as long as it's for the right patient. Uh, so the paddle leads have a number of advantages and they have some disadvantages. And so matching the appropriate advantage uh, with the appropriate patient is always the key. Uh, you cannot place them, uh, actually, this might be an untrue statement as of two months ago. Um, I was about to say you can't place them without surgically going in and removing some of the lamina on the spine, so it makes it a bigger surgery, more involved surgery. But the reason I mentioned that is in Europe, I heard that um, there's just a new release of a paddle lead that is foldable and can fit through a needle. And once you place it through the needle into the epidural space, it has water chambers and you fill it up with water chambers and it unrolls and lays out on the spinal cord. Uh, extremely fascinating. I haven't seen it in real life yet, but uh, the advantages of uh, paddle leads is that they focus their energy on one side of the lead. So down towards the spinal cord. And so less energy is directed away from the spinal cord. So that's a huge battery saving uh, parameter. Uh, migration for paddle leads uh, is possible, but it's a little more stable usually than the percutaneous leads that take time to uh, solidify in. So there are certainly advantages for patients. Uh, I send folks off for paddle leads all the time when um, there's epidural scarring in the area or other major surgery in the area where uh, it makes it uh, untenable to do uh, the percutaneous technique. So it definitely has a place and has a function and we use it uh, on a regular basis. The last question is very interesting and this does come up from time to time. Um, is there an expectation that patients will over time require less SCS or not at all? How often are these therapies temporary or do, you know, develop taxophylaxis type of thing? So uh, both of those statements are true and we're collecting data and trying to understand why. There is certainly a number of uh, reports that find that patients, uh, oftentimes when you're looking at CRPS, it has a continuum and sometimes people uh, get better and don't need it. So I certainly have explained it to a number of people who've gotten better and just say, 
I don't use it anymore because that pain is gone now after, you know, a few years. Uh, the flip side is also true. There are people who say my pain is still there, but this is no longer working. That's the, uh, I think, the uh, most important thing in our field to address uh, currently and uh, understanding what's happening at the neural level by recording and understanding the neural activity, I think is key. What we have found out through uh, usage of all the devices commercially available today is that for the first 50 years, we were probably stimulating at too high an amplitude. So all the companies and all the devices are focusing on reducing that stimulation. Just like with medications, if you give someone too much opioid for too long a period of time, opioids stop being effective. And yet we certainly have people on really low dose uh, opioid therapy for decades uh, and not escalating because we keep it at a very, very low dose and manage it appropriately and, and uh, modulate it via other mechanisms. So this is a therapy like any other. You can't just set it and forget it and not manage the patient. You have to all constantly evaluating what changes it makes. Sometimes it's a change in the device itself. Sometimes it's change in something else. So, um, uh, but that number I quoted earlier, somewhere between 10 and 20% loss of efficacy for therapy uh, in the course of two to five years is what we still see. And uh, that's a, a dilemma that we certainly have to solve. And by understanding all the parameters that lead to that, I think we're heading in the right direction. That's why um, the success rate keeps going up um, over time, but we're not quite there to understand all of that just yet. Dr. Prey, thank you so much for being here this evening. There were a great conversation, great questions. Thank you all for attending our lecture and have a great evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.